Today is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. On January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to two that the Constitution protects the right to choose to have an abortion. It's perhaps surprising to remember that that 7-2 majority included five Republican appointees, as well as at that time the only Catholic on the court. Six months ago, in Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, a very different Supreme Court overruled Roe in a 6-3 to three vote, giving individual states the power to regulate any aspect of abortion not protected by federal law. So that decision has created a patchwork quilt for abortion access. In some states that you're seeing in green here, abortion remains legal or legal but limited in various ways. But of particular concern is the large swath of states that you're seeing here in red where abortion has a full ban. And it disproportionately is going to impact historically oppressed groups already is. In a post-Roe world, there is a renewed urgency in the struggle for reproductive justice. Following the influential work of the sister song, Women of Color uh, Collective, the movement for reproductive justice is often organized around three core values that are related to the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy. Those three central values are the right to have a child, as well as the right to not have a child, as well as the right to parent all of the, the child or children that we do have in safe and healthy environments. That's reproductive justice. To give context for how is it that we reached our current situation, I'm really tempted to take you on a long scenic tour of the 1965 Supreme Court case Griswold versus Connecticut and the 1992 case Planned, Par Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Those really matter. Go look into them if you want to get into the, the details of this. But I, I don't want to get lost in the legal details, and there's a number of things I want to make sure we get to. So I'm going to focus on just a few major points. At the risk of oversimplifying, don't come at me lawyers, the uh, Roe versus Wade decision boiled down to two compelling interests. On the one hand, Roe versus Wade argued that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment provides a right to privacy and that that right protects women and other pregnant people who choose to terminate their pregnancy. On the other hand, according to Roe, this individual right must be balanced against the government's alleged interests in protecting prenatal life. Now, some would argue that the government's actual interest was in controlling women's bodies. But right now, I'm just trying to clarify the logic on which Roe was decided. Roe recommended balancing these competing interests of privacy versus prenatal life using the trimester system that we've all come to be familiar with in which different options were possible depending on how far along the pregnancy was. Now, it's important to be honest that from the time that Roe was decided, many legal scholars, both uh, liberal and conservative, were skeptical about whether the 14th Amendment actually includes the right to privacy. 
You may recall hearing about the penumbras and the emanations on which Roe was argued. Anybody remember that from, from high school or yeah, the penumbras and emanations? Even many pro-choice legal scholars have long been on the record that in many ways Roe was a good result based on flawed reasoning. All of this matters, not only for reproductive justice, but also because many other constitutional rights we have come to take for granted. The right to contraception, the right to interracial marriage, the right to same-sex marriage, they're all rooted in a similar logic to Roe. And, you know, the conservatives, the current conservatives on the Supreme Court are like, don't worry, we're not coming after those. Uh, I don't trust you. Uh, These rights are newly vulnerable now that Roe has been overruled. So what might we do differently to better secure our basic rights? One recent guide that is equal parts profound and provocative is a book titled Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Uh, It's by Ellie Mistal, a graduate of Harvard Law School and a justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, which is a really helpful magazine for any of you that subscribe. Be forewarned, this book contains a lot of profanity. I mean, a lot of profanity. Uh, On balance, I'd say the cursing is pretty hilarious and warranted, uh, given the state of things. Your mileage may vary. Uh, Mistal contends that instead of trying to build our constitutional right to privacy on the shifting sands of the 14th Amendment's due process clause, a much more solid foundation is another section, but also of the 14th Amendment, and that is the Equal Protection Clause. Mistal argues that you can make the case in three sentences. He's like, you don't need to make some big, long thing. I can do it for you in three sentences. And here you're going to get a taste of his sarcastic sense of humor. He says, it turns out that women, being people, have the right to control the reproductive system, just like men people do. This right flows from the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection which we now recognize includes the right to have sexual intercourse without internal reproductive consequences. We note that men people have technically enjoyed this right to sex without incubation for five to seven million years, depending on when you start the clock on anatomically modern humans. So the justices were aware at the time that Roe was decided uh, that they could have chosen to make an argument from the Equal Protection Clause, but instead they chose the weaker Due Process Clause. Mistal invites us to consider that the reason why is as straightforward as it is for many, including me, rage-inducing. It turns out that once you start giving women equal protection under the law, the whole patriarchy starts to crumble. And we don't want that, do we? Keep in mind that the first female Supreme Court justice was not, in all of U.S. history, was not appointed until 1981, almost a decade after Roe. Mistal further challenges us that we have neglected protections for reproductive justice that are in the 13th Amendment. In his words, the same amendment that prohibited slavery surely prohibits the state from renting out women's bodies. Because remember this balance, right? Privacy versus the government's interests. Surely prohibits the state from renting out women's bodies for free for nine months to further its interests. Forced labor is unconstitutional. For anyone who has been pregnant, you know, you know in a, a deeply personal, intimate way 
that as Catherine began to describe, that is beyond what I or any man could ever know of what it requires physically, emotionally, on every conceivable level to be pregnant for nine months and then to give birth to a human being. For this reason, Mistal is no holds barred about his view that it is barbaric. It is barbaric to force a woman to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term. Forced birth, he says, it's, it's just wrong, and it can never be compelled by any legitimate government that pretends to be in a free society. And let's all be honest that if all men could be pregnant, there is no way that forced birth would be legal. So from the perspective of equal protection under the law, it should be unconstitutional to force women to give birth. Too often legal uh, arguments have been framed almost exclusively from the perspective of rich white men for the benefit of rich white men. And I appreciate Ms. Stahl's emancipatory perspectives on our constitutional rights. To say more about where we might go from here, I'd like to invite us to consider two additional points. First, let's look at the wide spectrum of public opinion about reproductive justice. We're actually not as polarized about abortion in this country as it sometimes uh, appears. Then we'll consider some of the diverse ways that uh, religious traditions have conceptualized reproductive justice. It is vitally important not to allow conservative Christianity to be the only voice in the room when the ethics of reproductive justice are defined. To begin, let's look at the wide spectrum of personal opinions about reproductive justice. As our guide, I'll be drawing from a fascinating new book titled 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America by Ryan Berge. He's actually, if any of you are on Twitter, he's really interesting to follow on Twitter. He just generates like fascinating charts every day about the intersection of religion and politics. He's a professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University, and from analyzing public opinion polls, he highlights one of one often neglected follow, finding, and that is that as a country, we are not nearly as polarized about abortion as it often seems. In general, one can make the case that the actual preferences of the American public, they're surprisingly practical about abortion rights, much more so than the extremely conservative current Supreme Court. For instance, here's one standard way that public polling is done about abortion. Respondents are asked, where would you locate yourself in regard to each of these five points? The first is, are you just 100% pro-choice? Always allow a pregnant person to obtain an abortion as a matter of choice, period. Or uh, ban abortion after the 20th week, which is the halfway point of, the standard, of a standard pregnancy, an average pregnancy. Uh, three, allow pro-life employers to decline coverage of abortion in employment plans. Now, here we get into the incredibly problematic uh, fact that our employers have any control over our health insurance. But anyway, uh, the fourth is to prohibit the federal funds for abortion. And then finally, 100% anti-abortion uh, to make abortion illegal in all circumstances. As you saw from that opening slide is being done, this large uh, swath of red states. Many people believe that huge numbers of the American public either score a one or a five, with no one in the messy middle when it comes to abortion. But what is the reality? Consider this chart. The left-hand side shows our collective perception of what we think our fellow citizens think. 
Not what they think, what we think they think. Most people assume that about a third of the U.S. public is comparatively, uh, is completely pro-life in all situations, and another third is completely pro-choice in all situations, and a final third are moderates in the middle. But it turns out that public opinion about reproductive justice is one of those places where Brene Brown would invite us to say, the story I've been telling myself about this is, dot, dot, dot. And then to acknowledge that the stories we tell ourselves about any number of things are not always fully aligned with the complexity and the nuances of reality. So if we shift our focus to the chart on the right, we see that people rep- this is what people report about their actual opinion about abortion. Without focusing on the exact numbers, just visually notice the difference between the two and how the chart on the right is much flatter and more, uh, and really, than compared to these polarized extremes that are often imagined to be the case. No score, if we look at that chart on the right, is much lower than 10% of the population. So it's sort of like everyone's pretty represented around here. Uh, And no score is higher than 21%. Americans are truly all over the map in regard to their thinking about abortion. The least popular opinion, note, is for abortion to be completely illegal. The least popular. On the other end of the scale, support for access to abortion in all scenarios occurs twice as frequently as that least popular opinion. Only one-third of the public combined is at either end of the polarity. The remaining two-thirds, the vast majority, are somewhere in the middle. And to me, there's actually some good news here that in overturning Roe, the Supreme Court has stepped out of line with the vast majority of the American public. And if you are angry about the extremity of the Dobbs decision, you are not alone. And that is reason to be hopeful about the potent future for organizing around reproductive justice to make a change. And some of that we already saw come to fruition in the most recent election. Along these lines of tracing the surprisingly wide spectrum of public opinion about abortion, let's consider the similarly wide range of religious views about reproductive justice, because it's often assumed, well, if you're religious, you must be 100% pro-life. It is vital, again, not to allow conservative Christianity to be the only voice in the room when the ethics of reproductive justice are defined. It really matters who's in the room where it happens. And if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. Even regarding, uh, even regarding conservative Christianity, it's important to note that it was not always as strongly anti-abortion as is the case today. Having grown up Southern Baptist, I'm old enough to remember, and some of you will remember this as well, that many evangelical Christians considered anti-abortion to be a Catholic issue. That is not a slam on Catholics. It is truly and genuinely the way I heard abortion described growing up. That's a Catholic issue and not you know, a primary thing for Catholics and just not really a priority for evangelical Christians. Prior to the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s, many Southern Baptist pastors publicly supported abortion in a number of instances, including a mother's mental or physical health was at risk or in the case of rape or congenital disease of the fetus. Indeed, at multiple meetings of the Southern Baptist Convention throughout the 1970s, so even after Roe, the Southern Baptist Convention passed resolutions supporting legal abortion in such cases, and a lot of that was sort of a reflexive anti-government stuff. Keep your government out of our religion and out of our conscience. 
We don't have time to review all the world's religions, but since a Reformed Jewish congregation right here, there's a Torah in that closet, that's, that's uh, Kolomi's uh, sanctuary storage. Uh, a Reformed Jewish congregation has been renting our sanctuary for well over a decade. Let me just briefly use one more example for, of Judaism. Uh, Jewish law has traditionally been interpreted from liberal Jews to quite conservative Jews as teaching that life does not begin until the baby emerges from the mother. Throughout the pregnancy, Jewish tradition has always held the mother's life is primary. To quote a representative rabbinical view, the fetus is unknown. The fetus is future, potential. The mother, the mother is known, is present, alive, and asking for compassion. We Unitarian Universalists have often been regularly at the vanguard of the movement for reproductive justice starting in 1963, a decade before Roe. We just got started in 61, so you have to give us a little bit of time. Uh, we passed a series of resolutions at our annual, annual General Assembly supporting, quote, the right to choose contraception and abortion as legitimate expressions of our constitutional rights. In total, we UUs have passed 21 statements over the years about reproductive justice. The most recent was this past summer. The most comprehensive was in 2015. They are all available on the UUA's website. Most recently, I was interested to learn about a group of pro-choice um, clergy in Florida, including two Christians, three Jews, one Unitarian Universalist, and a Buddhist. Uh, who are suing the state of Florida over its abortion law. You may have seen this. It was covered in the Washington Post. Uh, and the Florida's abortion law makes no exceptions. Rape, incest, nothing. No exceptions for abortion. And they are suing, saying, this is a violation of our religious values. In their words, we are pro-choice not in spite of our faith, but because of our faith. My colleague, the Reverend Tom Capo, is one of the plaintiffs, and he is the minister of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Miami. He underscores that our UU first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, is for him a deeply religious value and guides his advocacy for reproductive justice. He says, it continues to be her body throughout the pregnancy, and that worth and dignity needs to be respected. It has to be her conscience that decides whether that child becomes a person to have say over her own body and how she chooses to use it. It'll be interesting to follow what becomes of these lawsuits seeking to highlight that religious beliefs in the country, in, in this country, include not only pro-life theologies, but pro-choice theologies and everywhere in between. These lawsuits remind me of another significant piece of Unitarian Universalist history that has, been, has become freshly relevant post-Roe. In 1967, so six years before Roe was decided in response to a pre-Roe world, I wonder how many of you remember the formation of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. Does anybody remember that? All right. Part of, part of it. I knew that, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. So will say more about that. Uh, this is the front cover of the New York Times from May 22nd, 1967. If you look closely at the bottom left-hand corner, I've circled the headline, Clergy Offer Abortion Advice. Uh, these lawsuits remind me, uh, sorry, if you zoom in, you can read the subtitle, 21 Ministers and Rabbis Form a New Group to Assist Women Seeking Abortions. The Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion was the first, the first organization in the entire country to publicly offer abortion referrals. Uh, 
The founders included the Reverend Duke Gray, who was the minister of the First Unitarian Church of uh, Brooklyn. There was a phone number to call, uh, and you could meet with a member of this clergy consultation service for free, and at the risk of being arrested for making referrals at a time when abortion was illegal in many states, they would provide women uh, choosing abortion with the name of a doctor who was trusted, who was licensed, who was safe. As soon as that New York Times article was published, the hotline began ringing off the hook. Over the next six years before Roe was legalized, na- legalized abortion nationwide, the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion had referred hundreds of thousands of women uh, for abortions without a single fatality and helped establish the safety of abortion as an outpatient procedure. When members of the Clergy Consultation Service were asked, why, have you, why are you risking arrest to openly refer women to safe abortion providers, they consistently shared a variation of the same reason. They said, I've witnessed the impact of one or more illegal abortions gone horribly wrong. It opened my eyes to the problem and motivated me to join CCS to make a difference. To share a brief excerpt of their official statement, as members of the clergy, there are higher laws and moral obligations that transcend unjust legal codes. We believe that it is our pastoral responsibility and our religious duty to give aid and assistance to all women who have a problem pregnancy. To that end, we are establishing the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which will include referrals to the best available medical advice to aid women in need. The historic support for progressive religious movements, for women's equality, for uh, reproductive justice is one of the reasons that immediately after the Dobbs decision came down or was leaked, you heard us here at uh, UUCF highlighting three ways to support the struggle for reproductive justice in a post-Roe world. Those are, one, donate. Some people have more time than money. Some people have more money than time. You can donate to to a local abortion fund to assure that everyone who needs an abortion can afford one. Two, learn more about self-managed abortions and medical abortions, because the game has really kind of changed in the 21st century from the time of Roe. Uh, This website, abortionpillinfo.org, is called Self-Managed Abortions Safe and Supported a gender-inclusive site for up-to-date medical and legal abortion information. Unless you are a licensed physician, you are on much safer ground referring people to this website rather than you trying to give them medical advice, because this website's going to be accurate and it's going to be the most up-to-date. For basic information about at-home abortion pill options, look at plancpills.org for a counseling hotline, or just to familiarize yourself with how medical abortion works and how to find medications like uh, milfapristone, uh, misoprasol. So three, join an organization taking action for reproductive justice. Uh, such as SACRED, the Spiritual Alliance for Communities of Reproductive Dignity. As the saying goes, if you're feeling overwhelmed as one person, stop being one person. Join organizations. We are stronger together. The Unitarian Universalist own Side with Love is also a Side with Love organizing collective is also organizing a three-session class online for a reproductive justice organizing training starting this next Sunday at 4 p.m. online. Learn more or register at Side with Love. We Unitarian Universalists, we are a big tent 
with room for a wide diversity of opinions. But we are also a place that is historically committed to being a safe place for all women and for all pregnant people. So as we hold all of that in our hearts, I invite you to, in a few moments, go ahead and turn in your hymnal. Stay seated for just a second, but we're going to sing together in a second a hymn written in that spirit, number 1054, Let This Be a House of Peace. But Deb's going to introduce it. It's a little bit of a tricky one.